Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 9th, 2018. Yeah, I was away a little longer than I had expected. And it's going to take me a while to catch up with everything I'm doing in my life right now. Oy. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <sighs> self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, those are the only kind nowadays, by the way, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical is not biblical. It's not what God's Word says. It's uh, scratching, itching ears, things that are made up to make a buck. I mean, the the all the different <laughs> varieties of false teaching are all represented, and it's become more and more difficult to find the biblical gospel. It's, um, yeah, seeming to become like an endangered species nowadays. All right, so I am back. It's July 9th, and June was absolutely insane. July is going to be near insanity for me as well. Those of you listening to the podcast, my apologies. Um, I'm the bottleneck at the moment, and uh, we will be releasing episodes as we are able to uh, between now and the uh, PCR conference. Let's just say that um, yeah, I'm burning the candle at both ends and in the middle at the moment, and uh, that's not by choice. It's uh, literally <clears throat> been thrust upon me of the circumstances of my life. That's okay. We will... We will endeavor to persevere and walk through these things, and uh, eventually we'll get all caught up 
and everything will be hunky dunky, and then some other <laughs> catastrophe will happen in my life, and we'll have to deal accordingly. Anyway, I think you get the points. But uh, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we're going to begin with Ryan Lestrange's Monday word from, you know, last Monday. And uh, I you know, just have to ask, what does any of this mean? But not only that, as we listen to Ryan Lestrange um, wax strangely, we're going to also note that um, when we compare those who have had the actual gift of prophecy in the past – uh, that uh, in giving the you know giving a prophetic warning for something or a prophetic heads up for something, it's actually been clear what needs to be done and the church has taken action accordingly. And we have an example of that in the Book of Acts. So we'll take a look at that in hour number one. Also in hour number one, uh, fellow I don't know if I've really reviewed very often, a uh, fellow by the name of Mike Mott. And we're going to listen to him and a, a doctrine that he's teaching that's not actually biblical, but to the untrained eye would sound biblical. And uh, he's from King of Kings Community, um, which I believe is in Israel. And um, we're going to listen as he explains how we're to choosing the God of my encounter, choosing the God of my encounter, which, again, the Bible doesn't teach this. This is a strange new doctrine, if you would. And uh, we'll take a break after Mike Mott. And when we come back, an extended uh, time with uh, Benny Hinn and uh, his recently published video, The Secrets to Abundance. And, man, does this guy twist God's word horrifyingly bad it's i mean there's just no other way to explain it is that this is all intentional deceitful for the purpose of making a buck and for a guy who teaches uh, divine health and divine wealth gotta say benny hinn's starting to look a little long in the tooth which is what happens to human beings (laughs) under the curse yeah we all get long in the tooth and then uh and eventually uh, fade like the grass is uh, the way the uh, scriptures talk about it. So we'll uh, we'll round out hour number one with Benny Hinn. Hour number two, uh, a head scratching sermon by Brian Houston, and in the name of the sermon is the power of sin. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I heard you. I the, the collective. What? What did you say? Yeah, I know. Uh, so he's. And this is, I think I know what he's trying to do in the sermon, but the problem is, is that by the end of it, he kind of comes off making it sound like it's a positive thing that humanity fell into sin. But I know he's not really trying to do that. So it's, (laughs) okay, so that that will be uh, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith as we uh, to get the Aletheia back out to sea and start to uh, get some wind in our sails and see if we remember how to do this program anymore. So uh, let's get to it since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update. Let's do this. Oh. Hallelujah. Get up right now. Hey. 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 
the bits. Uh, Robert Tilton and Hubaba Conda. So uh, we are heading over to the YouTube channel of Ryan Lestrange. And uh, my apologies, uh, we have been really, really slow in getting out his Monday words. And uh, and since we're we're kind of in catch up mode and mustard mode as well. <clears throat> yeah, he just did that. Okay, uh, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to listen to last week's Monday Word, see if we can try to catch up. That that seems to be our theme today. And uh, this is uh, the Monday Word for last week. The uh, the presence is key. The, the presence is key. And we're going to do a little comparison work between Ryan Lestrange's prophetic abilities and an actual New Testament prophet by the name of Agabus, uh, found in the book of Acts, chapter 11. But here's Ryan Lestrange to explain to us uh, how the presence is key. Here we go. Hi, friends. It's Ryan Lestrange with the Monday Word. My Monday Word is a prophetic word. The presence is key. Mm. I, I recently awoke from a prophetic dream, and the Lord was speaking to me about houses and places of His presence. I believe God wants to seal in our hearts a prayer like Moses. Show me your glory, Lord. So God wants to seal in our hearts a prayer. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, what does that mean? We're thirsty, that we're hungry for the presence of God. We don't want another program. We don't want another meeting. We don't want another event. We want the presence of God. I believe many people right now are like David on the backside of the, uh, or in the wilderness place, I should say. Uh, his father, Jesse, didn't even bring him in when the prophet came, but he was worshiping. He was hungry for the presence of God. Moses on the backside of the desert, and suddenly he was drawn back to that place of fire, that place of... Suddenly he was drawn back. Back to that place of fire. So, okay, yeah, so you're gonna note uh, this is word salad. Um, you know, just actually, it's more like you know, stick a salad of words into a blender and hit frappy on the uh, on the blender, and blah, there you go. This is what this is. But I, I want you to note um, from the Book of Acts, chapter eleven. Here's what it says. Now, in these days, verse twenty-seven. By the way, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, the emperor Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So in this particular case, you're going to note that uh, Agabus didn't give a word salad, frappy button blender uh, prophecy because that's not really a prophecy. And he, the spirit said, there's a famine coming. It's going to be all over the known world. And what did the disciples do? I mean, Paul and um, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas, you know, uh, they they got busy. They got busy 
people donating, getting ready to send relief, you know, taking action. So you're going to note here that there was a prophetic word, there was action taken, which kind of begs the question, if uh, I were to take action on this Monday prophetic word, what exactly would my actions be? I'm a little bit at a loss to tell you what they would be because I have no idea what I'm supposed to do as a result of this so-called prophetic word. Exodus 33 said, He said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. There's a rest in the presence of God. There's a restoring in the presence of God. There's a renewing in the presence of God. The presence is key. And if you're dry today, if you're frustrated today, if you're irritated today, one reason is because you may be void of the presence of God. It may be time to get on your... You know, usually it's a good thing that I'm dry. You know, because when it gets really hot and humid, and it's been kind of sticky around here lately, um, yeah, I you know I don't like being moist, so um, <laughs> I don't know what he means by dry anyway. But okay, face before the Lord once again and say, God, I need your presence. God, I need your glory. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm desperate for you. When people begin to get desperate for God, God will show up in His miraculous power. When I woke, yeah, where does the scripture say that? When people will become desperate for God, God will show up in his miraculous power. This is part of a false narrative that's uh, put forward by people in the charismatic and charismatic you know, circles. No, nowhere does it say that in Scripture. God doesn't say, "Hey, you want you want to see some st- you want to see some miracles, man." Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you got to get some desperation going first before I can do that. No, that's not how the. It's not like our desperation becomes a you know the currency by which we buy the presence or miracles in our life. That's that's weird because you know an, another passage seems to come to mind here. And uh, and that's found in uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Here, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? This is verse 1. And he says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So if you're saying that people are going to receive the Spirit and have miracles and things like that because they have worked up the proper amount of desperation, that's a work of the law. But it's a, it, Paul says, have you, have you done this uh, you know, by uh, works of the law or by hearing with faith, believing the message of the gospel? This, the, the answer is the second one. So he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the second one, by the way, hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, so we come back to Ryan Lestrange here. In this dream, I was literally lifted up in the realm of the Spirit, and I saw churches, I saw ministries, I saw houses of prayer crying out for the presence of God. They were already doing marvelous work for the kingdom, but God was resetting them and saying, come back to my presence. I believe this is a prophetic word. Why would God be saying, come back to my presence? Jesus himself says in Matthew 18, where two or more are gathered in his name, he is present among them. Okay, so 
What are you talking about? For many, God is resetting you. Maybe you've been distracted. Maybe things haven't been going right. And the Lord's saying, come. Why does this guy yell all the time? <laughs> I just got back here and he's yelling at me. I don't like it when I'm being yelled at. Come back to my presence. I want to bring you back to my presence, says the Lord. I want to bring you back to your first love. I want to bring you back to the place where I awakened you, where I touched you. I want to take the coals from my altar and touch your prophetic lips once again. I want to anoint your eyes with eye salve once again. I want yeah, none of this makes any sense biblically. This is just utter nonsense. And you're going to note again, you know, what am I supposed to do as a result of this? I have no idea. Moving along. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Elaboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. So we're heading over to Jerusalem to the um, YouTube channel of King of Kings Community, which unfortunately is associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. We're going to be listening to Mike Mott and part of his message titled Choosing the God of My Encounter. And we're going to note that this is a weird twisting of Scripture, but it fits into this twisting of Scripture the, the grander false narrative of the New Apostolic Reformation and their emphasis on signs and wonders and encounters with God. And we'll consider the implications of this false doctrine and false narrative as we go. Here is Mike Mott. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been going through a series that we're entitling Encounter, where we've been looking at God's Word and looking at ordinary men and women, people in the text that have their encounters, different kinds of encounters with God. We've been searching and researching. Now, I'm going to pause right there. We're going to note something. Scripture does chronicle the accounts of many people, but if you really consider it in light of the overall population of humanity, it's a small number, uh, but uh, people who had encounters with God. Now, this is where it's important that when you're rightly handling God's Word, you consider a few things. And that is is that these encounters that people would have with God, oftentimes God was calling them as a prophet or maybe as a judge or calling them for an assignment that he had for them. And so God's encounters usually uh, were in tandem with God bringing a person forward and making that person the person for an event that would take place in uh, in Israel's history, whether it's uh, freeing the, the Israels from captivity to slavery in Egypt or to the Midianites after they got into the Promised Land, 
uh, to God raising up prophets call, to call people uh, back to God and repent of their idolatry. There were people who had bona fide encounters with God. But that being ca- the case, we must understand something, and that is is that you can't take a historic narrative that is a descriptive text and turn it into a prescription. So the idea would be is, is that, yes, God had a conversation with Moses. Moses had an encounter with God in the burning bush, but that doesn't mean that you're going to have your burning bush moment, your burning bush encounter. That's a twisting of Scripture because no text says, well, just like Moses had his encounter, you're going to have yours as well. ...and observing how these encounters look so that we can learn how we encounter God, what that looks like, what we can expect, how we... Okay, notice what he's doing here. I'm going to back this up so you can hear it in context. And I think it's vital that you do because this, again, is a twisting of Scripture. ...their encounters, different kinds of encounters with God. We've been searching and researching and observing how these encounters look so that we can learn how we encounter God, what that looks like, what we can expect, how we should position ourselves and position our hearts. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry, but over and again, nobody positioned themselves in order to have encounters with God in the Old Testament or even in the New. See, on its face, and this is the sad part about it, is, is that on its face, this is a false teaching, and if you know your Bible and you have a proper understanding of how Scripture works, you would immediately recognize that the whole premise of this message is false, and it's deceptive. And unfortunately, the people there don't see it for that, and the reason why is because in the charismatic, in the NAR wing of the charismatic church, there is, part of their narrative is, is that you are supposed to see signs and wonders and have encounters with the glory and the presence of God. And uh, no, that's, that's actually a false narrative and it's a false doctrine. And we've run across some great lessons as we've looked at this, as we've begun to pour up, tear apart God's word and, and look at some of these lessons that he has for us in our lives today. It's worth pointing out, as we continue to go forward in this encounter process, as we're looking at what encounter looks like, it's important for us to see, to understand, to know that when it comes to other religions, they don't really have these encounter kinds of setups in a relational kind of way with the God that they worship, the little... Now, notice something. In a relational kind of way, and what he's doing is building off of one of the core tenets of evangelicalism. And unfortunately, this is a slogan and not a biblical doctrine, where many in evangelicalism for decades now have been saying, Christianity is a religion. It's not a religion, sorry. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. See, it's not a religion... It's a relationship. And so uh, the idea then is, is that it's all about you having a, a, a relationship with God. Now, I think when that thing of, originally came out, uh, the, the, the category of religion versus relationship would have been properly understood biblically in the categories of uh, a religion being a religion of works. You do these things and you earn God's favor, but in reality, 
uh, Christ by dying on the cross and giving us salvation as a gift. He has called us out of slavery, and now we are sons and daughters of God, adopted sons and daughters of God, and there's a relational aspect to it. And for sure, you know, we there is some relationship that we have with God, and uh, in fact, Jesus, when he taught us to pray, we invoke God by saying first, our Father who art in heaven, which tells us that our relationship with God is as, you know, Father and children, that's a great way to discuss, you know, a proper understanding of our relationship to God and with God. But unfortunately, you know, as things kind of go, slogans take over and become the core doctrine and they get unbuckled from any biblical text. And as a result of it, you know, you know, evangelicals, they understand, oh, we have a relationship with God, but they're not sure what that means anymore. And so now the NAR wing of uh, the charismatic church has come in and added to this slogan and built, uh, put another pile on top of it. So if you're, if you're having a relationship with God and you're having a relation, this is a relational relationship, then we should expect encounters because that's how that works. But no, this is not taught in scripture. Gee, God, that they worship. There's lots of worshiping of that God sacrificing to that God, limitations put on the worshiper by that God, rituals and observances, but rarely do we see they, they have this chance to interact in a relational way with God, with their gods. So then this is building off of the slogan, you know, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And so we are to expect then, if we're in a relationship, relational encounters. Again, in order for a doctrine to be biblical, it has to clearly be taught in Scripture. And, and as we look at our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is something that's very unique to who he is. We don't see it anyplace else. So it could be said that God never leaves the object of his affection alone. Rather, the God who had relationship with Abraham, the God who had relationship with Isaac, the God that had relationship with Jacob and with all of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator God of all living things, always is drawing his people, his creation, those that are believing and those that are non-believing into places of encounter where he can introduce himself to them. Yeah, except that no biblical text says that God is leading us into places of encounter. You're imposing that on the text. Who he is and bringing his spirit and his will into those settings to mankind. And he's the only God that does this. And it's important for us to capture this and to understand that, that, that this is our God. That means that there's no other God that's ever had this kind of ongoing, enduring interaction with human beings. Well, yes and no, not in the sense that you mean, but there is no other God. I mean, if you were to pick up the phone and call Baal, 
you, know, you dial the number, I mean, you would hear do do do. We're sorry, but the number you're trying to reach has been disconnected or is no longer in service. In fact, it was never in service. Baal never existed. <sighs> For you and I tonight, those of us that are followers of Yeshua, those of us that have been called into God's family, this is good news for us tonight. Because we can know that his desire is to have encounters with us. That's Okay, now, I want you to know, we are 3 minutes 34 seconds into this message. And he has not given us a single biblical text that says what he just said. Not one. It was extrapolation based upon speculation, and then from there, a therefore, and then building off of that thought. But he has not actually opened a biblical text and shown us a text that says or teaches what he just said. And what he just said is a doctrine. And granted, it's, it's a core doctrine, a major component of the NAR false narrative. But listen again to the conclusion with no biblical text. This is not how you teach biblical doctrine. And to God's family, this is good news for us tonight. Because we can know that his desire is to have encounters with us. That's his desire. That's his heart to have desires with us. We don't have to muster it up. We don't have to create it. We don't have to go making it try to happen because it's going to happen. God, yet you earlier talked about the need to position ourselves. Isn't uh, positioning myself something that I have to do in order to make it happen? To encounter us, and not just one encounter. God is going to have multiple encounters with us because he's looking for those opportunities to interact with each and every one of us. Uh, again, what are you talking about exactly? And you're going to note it's kind of vague at this point. No text, and yet this is a full-blown, fully developed doctrine that he's, he's injecting into this uh, congregation without any biblical text, telling him this is God's will, this is what he's going to do, this is what he desires. No text that say any of this. No matter where we're from or who we are. Rather, as we walk with this amazing monarch... This king of all kings, this Lord of all creation, he's never going to leave us alone. Because as Pastor Chad said a few weeks ago, he encounters us because there's something in our lives that needs to be touched by heaven. There's something in our lives that needs. Okay. Got to point this out. I mean, that was an extremely absurd statement. And yet he he was not quoting a biblical text. He was quoting Pastor Chad. I don't know who he is. Uh, but you know, God wants to encounter us because there's something in our lives that needs touching. <laughs> what does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. This is nonsensical. This is not a biblical doctrine. It sounds profound. It sounds pious because he's invoking God, made some kind of veiled, vague reference to the Bible. 
But he ain't teaching anything that's actually in the Scripture. If he were doing that, he would actually have to open his Bible or turn it on and start reading a passage and exegeting it and showing us in the text that this is what God's Word says. But he's not doing that. Be changed as God is sanctifying us, as he's making us more like Yeshua, as we are in relationship with this amazing God, he never leaves us alone. We now, can- now, Jesus says, by the way, that, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Christ is present with his church. He's promised never to leave his church. But notice he's not talking about that. What is he talking about? Expect multiple encounters with this lover of our souls. And that's why Pastor Chad said a few weeks ago that we need to, and we've said several times actually, we need to put ourselves in a position where we can have as many many as possible encounters and encounter situations with this God. How does one go about positioning themselves in order to have as many encounters as humanly possible with this God? You just said these things would just happen and there's nothing we can do to make them happen. And then you said, I have to position myself so that as many can happen as can happen would happen. Again, man-made doctrine, but it's a core component of the new apostolic reformation and the five folders and their uh, so-called ministries, uh, because everything is based upon, well, we believe that God has restored certain gifts to the earth, and so we have to have encounters, signs, wonders, miracles. we got to do greater works and all this kind of stuff. But this whole doctrine right here, nah, it ain't found in the Bible. It's 100% man-made, as man-made as the Pharisees' doctrine of the need to wash your hands when you've been out among the Gentiles. That is also a man-made doctrine found nowhere in Scripture. These, those two doctrines have a lot in common. And Jesus actually saves some pretty strong rebukes for those who teach as doctrine the commandments of men. But that's exactly what's going on in the NAR. And this is just one of many different doctrines that are easily demo- de- de- demonstrated to be man-made. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have an extended Benny Hinn segment. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select.
Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no, well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well, not to worry, not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Hmm, not worth just looking. Definitely not. All right. How about The Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, Divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-L-P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. Mm, the Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. <sighs> Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Perilandra. No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. And perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent But Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I I did. They sent me here. Did they? I I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, it's one o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated The version. expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Uh, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Yes, we got 
found it. I see it somewhere. Yes. I found it. It's here. Got it. Yes. Here we are. Martin Cumnitz's Two Natures in Christ. There's your book. Now buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I, I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I, I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's James. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home. There's wait, your... wait, wait, wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's Delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that um, having encounters with God is not actually a biblical doctrine that's on 
going right now. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our four, no, three, a lot of friendly yellow <laughs> buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell, tell I've been out of pocket for a while? All right. So uh, your first button says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click Become a Patron button. And, of course, if you'd like to support us the uh, traditional way, you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, and i got to tell you, this next segment is going to probably make you upset. This is one of the most egregious, slimy, money-grubbing segments we've ever done here at Fighting for the Faith. And we haven't even done it yet, and I know that's the case. So let's play our money-grubbing televangelist update music, and we'll get to it. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go Money, 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 money. All right, so we're heading over to the studios of Benny Hinn, and uh, the name of this uh, video, you can find it on YouTube at Benny Hinn Online, and it's Bible Secrets to Abundance. And this is, we're going to deconstruct this and show you how, you know, how the anatomy of his money scheming works. This whole program is designed to convince you that God wants to give you blessings, but you have to be obedient. And the way you be obedient is send in a seed offering. That's what he's after. He's not into rightly handling a biblical text. He wants them seed offerings. And so here's Benny Hinn. Thank you for joining me today. You are going to love this. I'm going to share with you biblical secrets that will bring the blessings of God to your life, to your home, and... Okay, got to note this. When you hear somebody start like this and say, we're going to bring biblical secrets so that you can have abundance, you're already being conned. There are no secrets in the Bible. The Bible's an open book, if you would. And there's no secrets that you need to apply in order to attain wealth. Hmm. Nope, not at all. To your business, 
where you will never have to fear lack ever again. Mm, wow, that's quite the sales pitch. Now, he's really good at that. Now, I want you to hear it in context again. Back it up 15 seconds. Biblical secrets that will bring the blessings of God to your life, to your home, and to your business, where you will never have to fear lack ever again. The Bible. Now, this is the bait. This is the bait. This has a hook, by the way. That's the bait. So there you are. You're flipping channels, and you come across Benny Hinn. And you're sitting there going, oh, it's one of these televangelists. So you're going, yeah, I'll listen for a few minutes. I mean, these guys are stupid. And then, you know, of course, you're struggling financially. And this guy's all of a sudden, I'm going to teach you the Bible secrets so that you can have abundance and never have lack again. And you're going, all right, you got my attention there. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the bait. That's the bait. says in Acts 4, none lacked among them. All right. Now, did you catch that? I want you to hear it again. I want you to hear it in context. And he says in Acts chapter 4, none had lack among them. There's a reason why none had lack among them, but he omits that data. Listen again. Where you will never have to fear lack ever again. The Bible says in Acts 4, none lacked among them. Mm. Now, that's the promise of God. Uh, no, actually, it's not. None lacked among them. Now, let's take a look at our Bible program. By the way, a lot of you ask, what Bible program are you using? This is called Accordance, A-C-C-O-R-D-A-N-C-E, Accordance Bible. You can look them up on on the uh, on Google, and you can find it's like AccordanceBible.com. That's the name of the program. I I say that just because people are asking all the time. But let's go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And uh, we'll, we'll note the uh, the passage that he was talking about. And they had no, no lack among them. And so this is the description of what it was like uh, among the apostles and the new converts to Christianity. And we'll note what's going on here. Acts 4.32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So here's the reason why. Now, the people in the book of Acts at this time in the history of the church didn't have any needs because they were selling their properties, donating it to the church, the church was taking those proceeds and redistributing those proceeds as any had need. They were engaging in charitable giving specific to the purpose of meeting other people's needs. Now, if they had 501c3s at the time, and they didn't, these would be noted as not just donations, but donations for a specific purpose, for the purpose of meeting the needs of the poor. 
That's the idea. So why did nobody have lack among them? Because of generosity and sacrificial giving to those who were in need. Not to uh, uh, a televangelist as a seed offering. No, 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 no. And so you're going to note that it doesn't say that the poor sowed a seed offering to the apostles in order to show that they were being obedient to God so that God would bless them and they would have no lack. That's the formula that you're going to hear from Benny Hinn. Instead, the rich, the wealthiest among the Christians, sold pieces of property, gave the proceeds to the church as a specified donation for the purpose of meeting the needs of the poor, the exact opposite of what we're going to hear. So there you can see, uh, and so Benny Hinn saying, Acts 4 says there was no lack among them. Uh, And see, this is the promise of God. No, 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 no. (laughs) You're making it sound like some mystical thing that God's going to do. No, God works through people. So he desires for Christians to be generous and to take care of the needs of those who financially are in distress. Uh Uh-huh. That's not what he's teaching, though. Let's come back to his video. And so we'll note he's already twisted one passage of Scripture. When God begins to bless us, no lack in our home, no lack in our work, no lack in our future. I will show you from the Bible. You see? No lack in our future. You're going to show me from the Bible. You've already twisted Acts 4. This is the highest authority we have right here. Yeah, it is. You can stake your life on what the Bible says. Indeed, this is true. But that would require you also to rightly handle the biblical texts so as not to make promises for God that he didn't make. We cannot trust what business people say. We cannot trust what the world says. We can only trust what God says. Mm. And God gives us secrets that really work. No, nothing in the Bible is a secret. The Bible is an open book. It's been around for a long time. People have been quoting it for millennia, literally. Yeah, there, there are no secrets in the Bible. By the way, the idea of a secret when it comes to Christian theology, that's not Christianity. That's called Gnosticism, something very different than Christianity. Now, the Word of God says, this is Acts chapter 4, verse 33 and 34, where God... We've already taken a look at that and know that you've, well, mangled those texts. ...blessed the church. And then we see this amazing declaration, none, not one, none lacked among them. Right. In order for you to be teaching this correctly then, Benny... Since your net worth is like in the hundreds of millions of dollars, um, it would be for you to sell your private jet, sell your mansion overlooking the Pacific Ocean out there in Laguna Niguel, and, you know, give the proceeds to the poorest people in the church today. You know, you, you see what I'm saying here? You remember in the Old Covenant... When God brought Israel out of Egypt. Sure. It says not one was sick among them. Now that's a magnificent state of health. 
that when God took his people Israel out of Egypt, not one person was sick. Not one feeble among all their tribes. We're talking about three million people. And not one even with a toothache or a headache. Hmm. Now, just like God declared in the word that none were sick, in the New Testament, he also added, none lacked. So Now, did you see what he did there? Just like he said in the Old Testament, none were sick. By the way, um, let's just assume that you're handling that text from the book of Exodus or the Torah correctly. Um, and we'll, we'll say, okay, so that was something that historically occurred, past tense, in the history of Israel during their wilderness wanderings between Egypt and the Promised Land, which took 40 years because of their sin and unbelief. Um, so, okay, sure, no problem, right. But here's the issue. Moving forward into the book of Judges, moving forward into the book of Joshua, from there into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, was that the state of Israel for centuries upon centuries, when King David was king of Israel, where there's nobody with toothaches or lack or anything like that? Nope. And so you note what he did there. He didn't even really tell you the text. He didn't even tell you where it was. He just made vague reference to it. Said it says this in the Old Covenant. And then said, and then now God added to it in the New Testament. There in our text in Acts 4. And they, no one had lack among them. So no, perfect health, perfect. Well, this is what God wills for you. Both texts taken out of context. And that's the idea. False teachers like him are the masters of manipulating the Bible by taking phrases out of context and sticking them together when they don't go together. This would be like me saying, you know what? God wills for you to take your own life. You don't believe me? It says in the Bible that Judas went and hung himself. And in another passage, it says, go thou and do likewise. So there, you know, it doesn't work that way. He just did the equivalent of that there. No sickness. Mm -hmm. No poverty. None. Now, that's the promise of God. No, it's not. Not in this earth. That is the promise of God when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, new heavens and a new earth. And we then experience the visible reign of Christ here on earth. That's an absolute promise in the coming visible kingdom of God after the return of Christ. That's not a promise for Christians here and now. This is what God says. It's too good to be true. You bet it. it is, and it is true. Mm, you just admitted it's too good to be true, and that is too good to be true, because it's not true. You've twisted God's word to make it appear like God's word teaches this when it doesn't. No sickness, no poverty. Now, notice something here. Um, Benny Hinn, what color is his hair? Pretty gray, yeah. You'll, you'll note that uh, he's looking a little long in the tooth there. I mean, Benny has seen better days. I mean, he's kind of looking old. And, you know, I'm sorry, but old age, that's all part of the fall and the result of the curse and sin. And if he was having perfect health, he, he his hair would have the same glory that it had back in the day. 
And he wouldn't be having the wrinkles that he has now. So it's fascinating. You know, don't trust a faith healer who's talking about having perfect health when it's clear that he doesn't. Look for eyeglasses or old age. Sure signs that he's conning you. Now, what does the world fear most? If you ask anybody out there, what do you fear most? They say what? I do not want to die. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to die. Number one fear, the fear of death. What do they fear second? What is it people fear after death? Like Speaking in public? What is it they don't want? Sickness. Nobody wants to be sick. Nobody, yeah. Nobody wants to die with cancer. Mm. Nobody wants to die with heart disease. No, no. Nobody wants to die with any problem. No. That's why we have hospitals, doctors, medicine. And they work very hard at keeping all of us alive. Because, you see, that's in, in our human nature. Nobody wants to be sick. We fight it. We, we do everything we can to be free from disease. Well, what is the third fear of humanity? Nobody wants to be poor. The fear of poverty is the third fear on earth. So if you ask the average person out there, what do you fear most? I don't want to die. Two, I do not want to die with cancer. I don't want to be sick. I don't want any sickness in my, in my body. And number three, nobody wants to be poor. That's why people go get jobs. Says the man who's clearly getting older quicker. Jobs and work so hard to pay their bills. Well, that's the promise of God, that he will give you life. He will give you health, total health, not just health, abundant health. To total health, wouldn't that mean the health where you don't get old? You know, I, I think of Joshua, you know, uh, in the, uh, the book of, you know, uh, in the book of Joshua, you know, he noted the fact that, you know, the, he, had, he was one of the 12 spies who went to spy on Canaan. And uh, he was w one of two uh, that actually believed the Lord and gave a good report. The other 10 spies gave a bad report. Joshua, out of all of those 12 spies, he's the, you know, he and Caleb were the only two who, uh, who were allowed to live and go into the promised land. And when he entered the promised land, after the conquest of Canaan, you know, he noted the fact that he was just as healthy, just as young, just as fit as he was 40 years earlier. And yet Benny Hinn, I mean, I this is a fellow uh, we've been keeping tabs on for, you know, since I've been doing fighting for the faith. And before that, I mean, he, you know, he was on my radar as a false teacher, for, you know, for what now, 30 years? He He ain't looking... So good. No, no, he, he, he's just looking a lot older. And yet he's talking about perfect health and not dying. It's clear to me he's a lot closer to the grave than he was 10 years ago. Prosperity. So prosperity is not just something that, you know, we preachers talk about and people want to believe because they, it makes them feel better. No, no, it's, it's God's promise. It's God's promise. Prosperity is in the Bible. You cannot erase it from the word of God. God never promised poverty. He promised prosperity. You know yeah, could you show me those prosperity promises in context as part of the New Covenant, please? I was taught as a little boy when I went to Catholic school that, uh, that God only accepts the poor. 
that the rich will, will never make heaven, that only the poor people will go to heaven and the rich will go to hell. And so we... <laughs> All right, so that's what you were taught as a Roman Catholic. I would agree. That doesn't sound like sound biblical doctrine to me. But then again, Rome isn't exactly known for that, is it? Kids, that's all we heard and believed it. And so as I grew up, I did not want to be rich because I thought, well, that means I'll go to hell till I read the Bible. And then I... Maybe it's a straw man. You say, oh, I, I was afraid to be rich until I read the Bible. And so, you know, you don't have to be afraid to be rich too. Uh-huh. And so note, note the technique here. These are all manipulative techniques to draw you in. You know, say, yeah, you know, why should I be afraid to be rich? You know, of course I could be rich and not go to hell. <laughs> yeah, notice he's not talking about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and faith in Jesus Christ as being the antidote to the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic teaching that he received when he was a young lad, that only the poor go to heaven, which I don't even think Rome teaches that. That may be a straw man, but okay. I saw for myself that God blessed Abraham. He mm. was rich. Yeah. Look, even when God created Adam, he introduced him to wealth. It says there was gold in the Garden of Eden, and the best gold. <laughs> that that, that uh, is also a strange reading of, uh, of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, we'll take a look at that real quick. And uh, wow, that was bad. Um, so, talking about the uh, the different <laughs> the different rivers. Okay, uh, Genesis two ten. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, he's, doing a, he's pulling a fast one in this sense. Now, it's describing that in the land of Havilah there was gold. And it does, notice it doesn't say that God introduced Adam to gold. It doesn't say that. Okay, so you'll note that the creation of Adam, uh, you know, <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't say anything about the Lord. Then you know, saying, "Hey, here's some gold. You, oh, you, you're, you're, I'm going to make you wealthy." Um, no, not at all. In fact, wealth and poverty uh, are two extremes, if you would, and these two extremes are created in in part by uh, uh, the fall. So Adam's been created, and God gave them everything, Adam and Eve, everything. Here's what it says, uh, 2.15, Yahweh Elohim took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die." So up to that point, you know, up to the point of the fall, Adam and Eve had the ability to eat whatever they want. Literally, are you hungry? Reach up and grab something and, and eat. There was no lack, and it's not a matter of wealth. 
This is how God initially created things. Poverty, then, is the result of the fall and our fall into sin and the need, then, for us to you know work by the sweat of our brows and to toil. That's all part of the curse. And so in um, Genesis 3.14... Um, and, uh, you know, the God, God begins giving out the, uh, the, you know, the curses to Adam, to, uh, to the, the serpent, to Eve, and then to Adam. And ending with Adam, he says to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your feet. Face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the idea here is, is that poverty as we know it is a result of the fall, and we, we do not live in a creation anymore where if you're hungry you just reach up and grab something to eat. No, you, you toil and toil and toil and sweat and toil and toil and toil and sweat in order to meet your needs. So you'll note again, he's not quoting God's word correctly at all, making stuff up and say, you know, hey, God's all about you being rich. He wants you to be rich. You, you got you to gotta have enough courage to be rich. But always with Benny Hinn, there is a catch. And so we'll fast forward a little bit in the video towards the end where you can start to see where the catch comes into play. You want to be wealthy? God wants you to be wealthy too. Yeah, I mean, because there was no lack among them. And God, you know, introduced Adam to gold and stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, so what do I need to do, Benny, in order to be rich? So what did Isaac do to prosper? Ah, that's the key. He obeyed God. In, in Genesis 26, verse 1 and verse 4, there, there was famine in the land. But no famine will ever affect you. All right, so let's take a look at the passage in question. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical uh, exegesis, which are context, context, and context. And he says, we ask the question, what did Isaac do in order to be wealthy, you know, to succeed, to be prosperous? And, and so that's the setup question. And so he's going to take this text, a descriptive text, and turn it into a prescription. But a weird one at that. He's not even properly prescribing it. And so, are you experiencing famine or lack in your life? Here's what you've got to do in order to experience abundance. And so, here's the text. Genesis 26.1. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine uh, that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to uh, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, singular, Zerah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, and my statutes. So note, um, similar to Abraham, when Abraham got to Canaan, there was... uh, a famine there, and he ended up going down to Egypt. Now a famine has struck Canaan again with his son Isaac and his family. And God has intervened and said, do not go down to Egypt. I'll take care of you up here. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. So you kind of get the idea here. That was a similar thing that uh, he 
he had a similar practice that his father did uh, with his wife, Sarah. And then we get to verse 12, after that incident, it says, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. Now, remember in the earlier part of the, of the chapter, God told him not to go down to Egypt and that, you know, basically promised to meet his needs there. He stays in Canaan. And here it says he sowed in the land, even during a famine. That means he actually put physical seeds in the ground. That's not an offering, by the way. And they tur- and they grew into plants and they reap and he was able to reap a harvest. That's called farming. Okay, but watch what Benny Hinn is going to do, because in his mind, sowing is code talk for sending him money. And that's really what he's trying to get these people to do. You obey God if you live for him. No financial famine will ever affect you. He sowed seed. In ver- no, he farmed. He, he actually sowed real seed. He didn't send money to a televangelist. 12, it says that Isaac sowed seed. In famine. That's Genesis twenty six twelve. He sowed seed. Yes, sowed seed as in like actually planted like wheat seeds or corn seeds. I don't think they had corn there. Uh, but, you know, maybe barley or you know, maize or something like that. You know, I'm sorry, but yeah, it was actually, this was called farming. So he gave. He looked around him. Uh, him did and- you see what he just did there? So he gave. No, he didn't. Farming isn't giving. Farming isn't a form of charitable giving. When a farmer buys wheat seed and plants it in the ground, he's not giving. He's planting. It would happen really quick. Let me back this up so you can see what he's doing here. He's now now changing the subject into somehow making it. Oh, see, Isaac, he gave. No, he didn't. He farmed. He planted. It says that Isaac sowed seed mm-hmm. in famine. That's Genesis twenty six twelve. He sowed seed. So he gave. He looked around him. No, he did not give. Him and, and, and saw death, saw famine. All the farms, all the land was dead out there. So how did he bring his own land back to life? He sowed seed. That's the first. No, he didn't bring his own land back to life by, quote, sowing seed, and which means giving. No, he planted as the Lord commanded him because the Lord intercepted him on his way down to Egypt and said, don't go there, stay here. And the Lord blessed him in the midst of the famine. And he did nothing to earn it. And putting wheat in the ground is not a form of generous giving. God wants you to do is start giving. Sowing seed will change the land all around. Okay, I'm going to back this up so you can hear it in context. This is literally one of the greediest things I've ever heard in my life. He bring his own land back to life, he sowed seed. That's the first thing God wants you to do is start giving. Sowing seed will change the land all around you. Because three things... Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Isaac literally farmed. He wants you to sow seed. That's code talk for send Benny Hinn money. This guy is wicked. It's changed for him when he sowed seed. Number one, the land came became green. That land came back to life. Two, two, he 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 produced a harvest. The harvest came, and three, a hundredfold harvest came in one year.
So three things. It says the Lord blessed him with that, and putting seeds in the ground is not giving. Happened when he sowed. One, the land came back to life. Two, a harvest came, but the harvest came all the same year. And a hundredfold of it came, not just a little bit of it came. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he understood the principle. You have to sow seed. It's not in No, in farming, if you don't plant your field, sow seed like wheat or barley or whatever, you won't actually get a wheat harvest. It's not generous giving. It's, again, called farming and you're twisting God's word because you're trying to tell these people that if they're in the middle of a financial famine, they got to sow a seed, you know, money in order and put it in your ministry pocket, AKA soil so that they, so that God can relieve them of their financial famine. This guy has no conscience. This guy is literally, his conscience is seared. His God is money, and the only thing he does is use the name of God so that he can line his pockets with more and more and more money. He is a con man, and why anybody who calls himself a Christian would listen to him is beyond me, because it is so patently obvious this man is a charlatan and a huckster and is only teaching for shameful gain the things he ought not to teach because he wants more and more and more and more money. Hmm. Sad indeed. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash higher Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at higher Christian. Quick break. When we come back, heading over to Hillsong and listening to a sermon by Brian Houston called The Power of Sin. Really weird. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. 
Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. Yeah, let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via hillsong church sydney australia brian houston the vision casting leader for the hills hillsong mega media empire will be uh, preaching name of the message is the power of sin and it's mind-numbingly confusing. It almost sounds like he's saying that sin is a good thing. <laughs> I, But that can't be what he means. But it kind of sounds like that is what his point is. But it can't be his point. Ah, I think you get the idea. Let me go ahead and back up on the music, and without any further ado, here's Brian Houston and the power of sin. Here we go. I talked right before I went away, over two months ago now, about firstly the power of pain, and then the power of loss, and then we talked about the power of weakness in our staff meeting and with our students there, and I spoke about the power of hunger. What I want to talk about today is the power of sin. And so, is it possible that God... Did you hear that? Woo! (laughs) Okay, power of sin. Okay, yeah, the power of sin to destroy our lives, to uh, send us to hell. What are you talking about? Take something as catastrophic as sin and turn it into power in your life. You see what I'm saying here? We're only seconds into this sermon, and already I am just confused. (laughs) Uh, Sin does not create power for anything good in our lives. It is a complete destructive force. Sin itself, you know, know, is slavery. It's not freedom. Um, uh, Yeah, I don't go and indulge in sin in order to 
you know, experience power in my life. In fact, it's the opposite result. So many verses that many of you could recite back to me that are the essence of the gospel, like Romans 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right, which is not, <laughs> that's a terrible thing. That, and we know that because of the law. The gospel <laughs> says that we're forgiven in Christ. Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Or John 3.16, you know. We wouldn't have needed this gift if Adam and Eve hadn't rebelled against God. This one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, we would have had that already. (laughs) All of us, if Adam and Eve hadn't uh, disobeyed God. John 1 verse 12, which says, as many as receive him to them, they become the children of God. Right, Adam was already that before he sinned. Oh, Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with them and they with me. Or 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, which tells us that in Christ we are new creatures. Right, we wouldn't have needed that. (laughs) Wouldn't have needed that uh, if Adam and Eve had obeyed the voice of God rather than listened to the false narrative of the devil. Passed away, behold, all things become new. Or Romans chapter 10 verse 9, which we have up here toward the end of every service. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Powerful scriptures we tend not to preach about because they're so foundational. And <laughs> Did you catch that? Wow, that is... That is uh, a damning indictment. Those are those are amazing scriptures. You know the gospel. We we tend not to preach about them because they're foundational. You'll note that the apostle Paul, writing to the churches and the and the Christians in Rome, preached the gospel to them, despite the fact that it was so foundational. And by the way, this is one of the major errors of evangelicalism. The belief that, yeah, the gospel just gets you in. Once you hear it, you don't need to hear it anymore. In fact, pastor doesn't need to preach it very often because it's foundational. It's down at the bottom floor. Once you got that sorted out, you don't need to hear the gospel again, which is not true. Well, no one. But you know, the powerful scriptures that are actually worth preaching about. And the way it all starts is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which is the bad news. It would have been better for all of us had Adam and Eve not sinned. Last weekend I was in Dusseldorf. I mentioned I was speaking there at Hillsong, Germany, linked to Munich and then to Constance. And across the border from Constance and Zurich in Switzerland. And it was great. So on the Monday, before flying out to come home... Uh, we were downtown Dusseldorf. It's a cool, really cool city. And it was a big celebration because Dusseldorf, their local football team, had just been promoted into the Bundesliga, which is Germany's biggest football league and have the biggest crowds in the world, incidentally, when it comes to soccer or football. So massive celebrations, people cheering and 
in the middle of it, there's music. And we were sitting with friends. We were just sitting outdoors. Uh, beautiful weather, actually, over there now. And we're just enjoying spaghetti. Germany spaghetti. And uh, listen to the music that was playing. And this is the words I could hear. If I was the question, would you be the answer? If I was the music, would you be the dancer? If I was the stu- <laughs> Why is it that Hillsong is held up as an exemplary church that every, every evangelical wants to uh, mimic? You, you, this guy <laughs> is not preaching scripture. I don't know what he's doing. Would you be the teacher? If I was the sinner, would you be the preacher? That's what out to me. If I was the sinner, would you be the preacher? Well, don't worry about asking if. If you're the sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, this is true. So we're going to hear a little bit of, you know, some of the gospel and law and gospel Sorted out sort of properly here. Deemed sinner may be. But yes, you are the sinner. The word hamatia, sin, it literally in its roots means to miss the mark, to fall short, to not quite connect with the glory of God. That's what it really means. And I learned actually in the dictionary that it actually is still a word that's used in English, hamatia, which talks about a fatal or a tragic flaw. In someone's life. And of course that's exactly outside of Jesus. What sin is. It's a tragic or a fatal flaw. Because it has a wage which is destruction and death. Well look I'm not going to beat people up over sin and repentance. I hope to do the opposite. Mm, Yeah but Jesus said to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In his name to all nations. And you're going to note, then he actually kind of buys into this idea, oh, preaching law and gospel, and it, it, it's beating people up. No, it's not. It is a necessary message that needs to be preached. It's not beating people up. It is sh- opening their eyes and exposing them to just how far short they have fallen of the glory of God and what the eternal consequences of that is, as well as what Christ has done. You cannot even begin to understand the gospel properly unless you first understand just how lost and sinful you are. And so you, you'll note, he, 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 foundational gospel stuff, they don't really preach it that often, but it's worth preaching from time to time. And, and of course, we don't want to beat people up. Again, this is totally misguided. I hope to build you up, preach about sin, preach about repentance and build you up and build you up to see that your sin can have incredible power through Jesus Christ. My sin can have incredible power. I literally want to beat my head against a a brick wall at this point. In your life. Because yes, I'm talking to Sunday morning service and obviously many people here have encountered Jesus, have literally made a choice, a decision to connect with him and to be born again, to be saved and to start on a new direction. But I'll tell you right now that there's not ever been a person who, after they got saved, never committed even one more sin. 
yes, this is true. This is why we need to hear law and gospel properly preached every single Sunday. Because it's not just that they haven't sinned once, it's that they haven't gone a single day without sinning and needing God's mercy and forgiveness. Yes, people here now today are dealing with oppression and dealing with bondages and are dealing with repetitive sin. And maybe what's your victory may be another person's battle. And what's their victory may be your battle. Because sin is not just over here in some areas like morality, but it's over here in areas like anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true, by the way. Um, Anxiety and worry are forms of unbelief. Yeah, Jesus preaches against that in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So I'm glad he's pointing that out. Nothing the Bible says. So worry is sin. And so, yes, we can look around and think, well, we don't really need to hear about sin because we're believers. But I believe God wants you to break the hold of bondage in your life. And yeah, See, and there's the other problem right there. I believe that God wants you to break the hold. Yeah, no. Um, God promises that he in Christ has broken the hold. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, where passages like Romans 6 come into play. Should we sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. For those of you who have been baptized into Christ and been baptized into his death, and those of you who've died, you are no longer slaves to sin. So, and Christ is the one who has done all of that for us. See you walking in the liberty and the freedom that he actually has called you to. So that's. He has won for you and given you, given to you. Uh, man, this is. He's. I don't even want to say he's in the ballpark. He's he's not in the ballpark, but he's in the parking lot of the ballpark. So he's in the general vicinity, but he's not where he needs to be. I hope that's our belief. And it's easy to feel like it's bigger than you. That sin has power over you. Right. <laughs> because we were enslaved to it. And maybe without Jesus, it does. But through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, You have power over it. Greater is he that's in you than he that's working against you. So God hates sin. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. That's right. I'm I'm glad to hear him preach so directly against sin. This is not a normal message from Hillsong. God hates sin. But the reason he hates sin is because he loves you. No. See, you don't have a text that says that. You see, and this kind of gets it back into another evangelical false sloganized teaching. That 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 being uh, God love hates the sin, loves the sinner. That's silly because God sends sinners to hell. So you, you got a problem there. You're precious to him. And he doesn't want to see the devastation and destruction that sin ravages within people and Around people. He loves you. That's why he hates sin. No. (laughs) He does love us, by the way. I mean, no doubt about that, but that's not the reason he hates sin. The tragedy is you start talking about sin and 
God and repentance. And you know what? So many people, they, they have this attitude towards God that no wonder it puts people off. It's like a stench because they paint this picture of God in many people. They have this idea that God is like a cosmic grump. He's just angry. He's angry and he's ready to pounce. That he has all these random and old-fashioned commandments. Um, <clears throat> random and old-fashioned commandments. I- is that a backhanded slap against the Ten Commandments? That are designed to suppress life and enjoyment and joy and all of the things that people are desperate for in life. That he has the standard of perfection that's impossible to keep. But then he judges people for not keeping it. That he gets offended over trivial things. Trivial things that really don't matter. And that ultimately he condemns people to eternal torment. Why? Because, well, he's a grump. I might be overpainting the picture, but... Now, I'm hoping that after he is given that litany, put in the mouth of unbelievers and what people you know, who are unbelievers generally think against God, that he will go back through that list and demonstrate, oh, the commandments are not old-fashioned, that God does send impenitent unbelievers to hell, and, and things like that. I hope he ends up just clearly defending the truth of Scripture and what God has revealed in Scripture against this caricature that he's voiced for the unbeliever. That's why people sometimes, if you ask them to come to church, would say, oh, if I ever come to church, the roof would fall in. They're joking. They probably don't really believe the roof would fall in, but it just paints the picture that's painted about the way God is. I got a tweet from one of the angry brothers. And in that tweet, It's very unusual for me to get a tweet that's not kind. I was like, shocked. In that tweet, he says, can you give the gospel? Can you tell the gospel in one tweet? And before I could answer, he actually then went ahead and gave his gospel in one tweet. I noticed he had room for the word wrath, judgment, sin. He had no room in his tweet for love or grace. Or forgiveness. That says a lot to me. And it's people's attitude towards God and their image of God, which is so critical. Yeah, the the gospel is not about wrath, judgment, and hell. That's the consequences of not keeping God's law, which we've all earned by our sin and rebellion against God. The gospel, by the way, if you would like to know where you can go in Scripture for a clear and concise definition of what the gospel is, you will always find that in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15. A little bit of a note, and that is that the Apostle Paul, the gospel that he preached, he did not receive it from a human being. You learn this in the book of Galatians. He did not receive his gospel from a human being, but he received it via a direct revelation from Christ. That being the case, I think it's vital for us to find where did Paul write down the gospel that he received, and that's found for us 
in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll start at verse 1 for context, uh, but verse 1 and 2 are kind of the leading into it, and it actually begins at verse 3. Here's what it says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That literally is the gospel in its most concise form, and you can unpack that and talk about wrath, you can talk about the consequences of sin, and then springboard into that about how Christ, God laid on him the iniquity of us all, because Christ died for our sins. And so there's where you go to find the gospel. It is best if you do not try to invent your own. False gospels have a tendency to land people in hell, both the people who preach the false gospels as well as the people believing the false gospels. Stick with the definitions that Scripture gives us. The gospel itself is defined and laid out for us. The one that Paul received from Christ himself is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But we return now to Ryan Houston and uh, him regaling us with a story about an angry brother who had a lot to say about wrath in a tweet. Okay. Our image of God is so critical. David, remember in Psalm 119 verse 68, said you are good and you do good, speaking of the Lord. And it's your image of God that will cause you to build your belief on what God would do or the way God thinks and so on. And so it's that view of God that then frames a whole lot of people's view of repentance. And you'll hear people say, you don't preach enough about sin. You don't preach enough about repentance. But you know, I actually think what they're saying is you don't beat people up enough. You don't have to... No, no, actually, what they're saying is you don't actually preach about sin. You are a scratcher of itching ears. You tell people what they want to hear. You have drawn a crowd at Hillsong of people who love the music, which theologically says nothing, and then you tell them that they are great and that they have a destiny and a purpose and they are the bee's knees and that they 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 are the man and you, you just scratch, scratch. And what you don't do is actually specifically work through biblical texts that would reveal to them their sin in all of its spectrum, how it manifests itself by using God's law, and then placard Christ week after week as the one who loves them, bled and died for them, calls them to repent, be forgiven, and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which is called sanctification. You know, The, the Reformed Baptists talk about the need to preach holiness and that's not what uh, Brian Houston preaches. He preaches a prosperity message, that your words create reality. He preaches a health and wealth message, that you know, God's going to give you divine health and wealth. And of course, he sure does preach a lot about 
the need to tithe and give offerings and things like that, but he doesn't actually work through biblical texts that reveal our sin. Placard Christ crucified for those sins and call people to repent. That's this is just a fact. How do I know this? I've been reviewing Brian Houston sermons for the better part of a decade on fighting for the faith. When people are sinners, they know. You don't have to remind people they fall short, not only of God. But- no, actually, you do. I, I want to back that up so that you can hear that again, because this is profoundly, profoundly ignorant. That repentance. But you know, I actually think what they're saying is you don't beat people up enough. You don't have to remind people they're sinners. Yeah, actually, you do. You really honestly do. They know. You don't have to remind people they fall short, not only of God, but of who they would want to be themselves. You don't have to beat people up. Because in actual fact, the subject of sin, when you look at it through the eyes of the work of Jesus Christ, is power. It is absolute power in people's life. And so there's all this mythology around repentance. And it needs demystifying, demythologizing. Yeah. Um, could you give me an example of that mythology regarding repentance and then use a biblical text to show us what the truth is regarding repentance? So you're going to note at this point, he's just spewing a theology without any biblical text. He's making claims without a biblical text. He is casting aspersions without a biblical text. And, you know, I don't know who he's fighting against. I don't know if this is a straw man or not. But the one thing is clear is that he ain't clearly teaching a biblical text. Debunking. Turned upside down. Well, if you're going to debunk, use the Bible to do so, please. Because the old schoolers, they loved to think about repentance and sin as something that we have to constantly remind people off and if you're not every week preaching about repentance and preaching about sin then you're not preaching the true gospel (laughs) we need more tears we need more sorrow i used to be on a committee here in australia where we oversaw hundreds and hundreds of churches and so as part of that oftentimes you'll be dealing with individuals who have sinned who have fallen short and who their lives are a tragedy right now unfolding and then from interviews with that person, often this is a, a, a resounding, in other words, I heard it more than once, little statement I would hear. I think they're remorseful, but I don't think they're repentant. I think they're full of regret, but I don't think they're repentant. Well, have you got a repentance barometer? Are you really saying they're not beating themselves up enough? Not enough self-flagellation? Thrashing themselves, beating themselves? Yeah, uh, repentance is a change of mind, and it does include sorrow for sin. But the other thing that repentance includes is faith, trust in Jesus that he has bled and died for these sins, that they are atoned for, and that they have a right standing before God because of God's grace and because he has provided for the punishment of those sins through the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Christ. So again, you're going to note 
Brian Houston is spewing his own ideas, and boy, are these um, ideas of his quite revealing as to where he is theologically. And he's not actually doing any real debunking work. That would take biblical texts and a careful examination of what Scripture says regarding repentance, what the gospel is. Feeling even worse about themselves, is that what you're talking about? You see, sadly, I think oftentimes it's why you travel the world and in cities all around the world, you'll see somebody just standing there sometimes with a microphone shouting into the space, screaming at people about repentance. And Yeah, um, I'm going to point this out is that I know and am in contact with a lot of people who do street preaching. And that is an ugly caricature of what real uh, people who are doing evangelism and preaching on the street do. Again, he's literally giving a voice now to the world's misperception of what street preachers do and characterizing them as all kind of like unhinged, unloving, unkind people. And nothing could be further from the truth. I have... I mean, out of all the people that I know, and I know a lot of people who regularly engage in street preaching. And by the way, somebody who's been known to uh, be out there preaching Christ out on the streets of the United Kingdom is Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, just to kind of name a you know, put one name out there so that you sit there and go, okay, that yeah, that doesn't. Charmley is like the last guy you could accuse of somehow being an unkind person who's just spewing hate. Uh huh. Preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins is not hate speech. Only the world thinks that. Quoting scripture is a condemnation. Because yes, because that's a necessary part of what needs to be done. The view they have of God. The view they have of the way God views them as a sinner. And it just builds this, I think, tragic way of trying to present the most wonderful message. Because it turns people off. It literally causes people to shun God. Which is weird because, you know, you think of the preaching of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And he would unambiguously go after people's sin. Now, a little bit of a note here. We'll we'll, we'll take a look at two texts real quick. Romans chapter 3, which was part of the litany of verses that... Brian Houston said that, you know, we don't preach these very often because they're foundational. Yet that very text says this. Are we Jews any better off? Romans 3, 9, by the way. Not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and become worthless no one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. So you're going to note that here, Scripture is quoting, you know, it, it, quoting, well, those verses of condemnation. It's actually write, writing them for us and condemning all of it, all of us, and saying that we're all under sin. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And here's the purpose then of preaching the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. And here's the thing. For by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified, that means to be declared righteous, in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We must preach God's law, which does condemn all of us and points the finger at every one of us and says, you're guilty of sin. And it's through the preaching of the law that comes the knowledge of sin, which is a necessary component then of then being able to preach the gospel because the gospel makes no sense apart from the knowledge of sin. So Paul then goes on, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Uh-huh. So law and gospel all go together, and somehow this Christianity 101 stuff, this, I mean, this is the basics of Christianity. It, Brian Houston, is he doesn't understand this. Which means, in some senses, he's really not qualified to be a pastor. This is the basics and foundation of the Christian faith, and it's shown to us in the Bible itself. Furthermore, when we go into, like, Acts chapter 17, you're going to note here the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel to the uh, the people in Athens. He was invited to come up to the Areopagus, and lay out what he was, uh, you know, what he was uh, preaching. And let me give you the account, Acts chapter seventeen. I'll start at verse sixteen, and you can see how the apostle Paul did his evangelism. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the whole city was full of idols. Why would that provoke him? Well, quite simply, <laughs> the first commandment is, "You will have no other gods before me." So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious— for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And so you're going to note, he's going right after their sin of idolatry and even their own understanding of the gods and saying it's totally false. That's exactly what he's doing. And so then he continues. 
Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Perfect example of preaching law and proclaiming Christ, right there found for us in the book of Acts. And of course, you just have to ask the question, how is it that Brian Houston somehow thinks that he knows better than the Apostle Paul as to, as to how to preach and what to preach. Shun his house and shun his grace and shun everything that he has for them. So there's a lot of mythology, like I say, around this subject. There's environments, environments I've been in where you know, people are encouraged every single week to come on the Salvation article. And so people week after week after week after week after week They'll come over again. They'll lift their hand. Last week, they'll lift their hand. This week, the only good news for a preacher is they help you to say, oh, I see that hand. But I saw it last week and I'll see it next week as well. Because I don't think they understand the fullness of the work of Jesus Christ in their lives. Of course, you haven't been perfect this week. And if you want to know, I'm going to expose right now the worst sinner in the place. You're sitting beside them. But guess what? Why didn't you point to yourself? The Apostle Paul did. You know, as he's getting ready to finish his course before he's going to be beheaded, he, he writes that, you know, that he is the chief of sinners. That's what Paul said about himself. Why, Brian, did you point to them and say you're sitting beside them rather than point to yourself? And then point out how we are all in need of God's grace. This is weird because at this point, he, he himself is having a tough time just confessing basic things about himself that he needs to confess. That he is a sinner. And like Paul, he's the chief of sinners. They are sitting beside the worst sinner in the place. No one here. Only perfect person in the room. <laughs> he says jokingly about himself, and, and I'm sure he'll fix that. <laughs> you know that's not true. <laughs> yeah, we all know that's not true because Scripture says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, you know, it was just more sorrow and tears. Notice he didn't really do that. He didn't really clean it up. Wow. 
Listen to Esau. Esau was, of course, the person who sold his birthright to his little brother for basically a bowl of soup, his future, his destiny as the firstborn son. But he did live to... It, it wasn't his destiny. God chose Jacob, not Esau, before the boys were even born. They, as it's quoted in Hebrews 12, verse 17, it says, you know that afterwards when Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. Though he sought it diligently with what? With tears. In other words, there's more than emotional response. Some- of course there is. Of course there is more than an emotional response. And yet over and again, we see in Scripture uh, accounts of genuine repentance that are accompanied with tears. What's the difference? The difference is this. It's, it is contrition and sorrow and faith and trust in God for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the two together, not one unbuckled from the other. Sometimes people, they come to an altar call and they got tears rolling down their cheeks and I love it. Other times people, they look sullen and you wonder whether they're even, ever even encountering anything. And then you see them go on for Jesus. Don't try to judge repentance on the outside. Yeah, you still haven't given a clear definition of what repentance is. Understand what repentance is. The Greek word is the word metanoia. Meta, metanoia, yeah. M-E-T-A and then N-O-I-A. And it literally means a change of mind. Correct. It means a change of attitude. No. It means a change of thought or thinking which turns to a change of behavior. Because it always starts with our thinking. It literally... Yeah, see, now we're, we're overcooking it. Means, oftentimes, to have a sense of deep sorrow. Yes. Over the mistakes that you've made. No, 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 no. Not mistakes. Notice here, he's shaving off the hard edges. Sorrow over sins committed. Sins are not mistakes. They are active. It is, you, you sin against God with your thoughts, you sin against God with your words, you sin against God with your deeds, you sin by the things that you do and the things that you don't do. So, no, no, sorrow for my mistakes, wow, that is unbelievable. However, your sinful past, it means a reformed life. Uh, sinful past, how about sinful present? Which I love that, because that's what the kingdom of God is about, changing life, bringing transformation, reforming lives. and often- Granted, those who've been brought to penitent faith in Christ and have been regenerated, they will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But the, it's not about, quote-unquote, changed lives in the truest sense. That's kind of a, the a wrong emphasis. It means a sense of wrongness of the direction you were taking. Okay. It means a change of belief. And that's important because sometimes people are trying to change their behavior, but they haven't changed their belief. And so one thing on the outside, something different happening on the inside. And I know there's many of you who could identify with that. It's like the little guy who refuses to sit down at the dinner table. He keeps getting up and running around and his father is saying to him, you need to sit down. 
And Johnny still won't sit down. He's running around. He said, Johnny, sit down. But still he's standing up. And finally the father threatens him. said, Johnny, if you don't sit down, da, da, da. And so Johnny sits down. And he says to his father spitefully, I'm sitting down on the outside. But I'm still standing up on the inside. (laughs) You know, oftentimes serving God can feel like that. Because there are people you are standing up. You're sitting down rather on the outside. But you're still standing up on the inside. And the work of the Lord always starts from the inside out. And so we're going to believe God for internal transformation, not just behavior, external change, but something on the inside that literally revolutionizes our entire life. And I thank God for the power and the beauty of repentance. And so everybody's fallen short of the glory of God. Yes. Everyone's missed the mark. Mm-hmm. Everyone. What does that mean? Yeah, it, it means that? that everybody has sinned against God and earned his wrath. Mean? Does that mean that you weren't good enough for God? Does that mean that God's like this lofty height and you couldn't reach high enough? Uh, why is he not going to clear text? Uh, you know, you think of like, you know, everybody knows John 3.16. John 3.16 literally says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then at the end of the, of the, end of the chapter, um, it says in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you're going to note that over and again, Scripture makes it clear that the fault is with us because of sin. We love darkness. Whoever does not believe is already condemned. And what's really interesting here is that um, Brian is really kind of mixing things up and not giving a clear sound regarding the fact that we have truly fallen short and somehow trying to make it sound like, well, is, is the problem that, got, that we haven't reached high enough or far enough? The, again, this is just weird. I'm going to back this up because the emphasis is clearly on the wrong syllable here with uh, Brian Houston. Is that what it means, God? You weren't good enough for God? Does that mean that God's like this lofty height and you couldn't reach high enough. Is that what it means? You technically cannot reach to God. He came to us. That's why Jesus was born. He's God in human flesh. He's descended because we couldn't ascend. You know what I love? I love the scripture in Exodus where Moses asked to see God's glory. He says, show me your glory. And Yeah, that's right. It's in the book of Exodus. Straight away, the next verse The Lord says, my goodness will pass by you. And again, at the request to show me your glory, the Lord says, my grace will pass by you. The glory of God 
is not a lofty, unreachable standard. The glory of God is literally His goodness and His grace. And if we just realize the simple... Yeah, yes, the text even goes on to say that, you know, God says to, you know, to Moses, you know, you can't see my face. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, put a hand, my hand over it and pass and have my goodness pass by you. And so when Moses is in that cleft of the rock, hand of God over the, over it, the glory of God passes by and pronounces Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, pardoning iniquity. The glory of God is the forgiveness of sins, to forgive and pardon us. That's his glory. It's the love, mercy, grace. I agree with Brian in a sense here, but the problem is is that he's using this text, which he hasn't read out, by the way. He hasn't read it out. He's using this text in juxtaposition to kind of a a, a world's uh, rejection, you know, talk the way they talk about rejecting God and making him look like he's the one at fault. It's causing us to miss out on the goodness of God, not just the harshness and the anger and the judgment of God. Yes, God is judge. And yes, it's appointed unto everyone wants to die. And after that, the judgment. But Yes, yes, it, that's true. But I don't want to talk about that. It's the goodness of God. It's the grace of God. It's the good news. Isn't it interesting that, in, you know, he, he, yes, I acknowledge that the judgment is really the, the thing, but we're not going to focus on that or teach what it is. But if your job as a pastor is to preach the full counsel of the word of God, which, by the way, it is, that's going to require you to uh, flesh out some biblical details regarding the judgment and the consequences of impenitence and unbelief. The gospel of Jesus, that's what we fall short of. He has so much for you. He has so much. He wants to impart to you, to give you a better hope and a better future, to fulfill his promise in your life. And if we could just realize... And now he's not actually preaching the real gospel. I'm not falling short in the way that I personally was taught when I was a kid, where if you went to the movie theater, the mindset was, you wouldn't want to be caught in the movie theater if Jesus comes again. Yeah, which is talking about the self-righteous legalism that was rampant in much of evangelicalism when Brian Houston and I were young men or young were actually you know when we were youths i know exactly what he's talking about but the reality is this is that that's self-righteous legalism nowhere in scripture we told you can't you can't go to the movies uh-huh that that's a legalism that is teaching the doctrines of men as if they are the doctrines of god so note here, he's not actually still giving a clear definition of sin biblically. He's rightly gone after the self-righteous legalism of the of evangelicals during the 70s and 80s. It's worth going after, I agree. And so the motivation to try to be good was always, if you like, the judgment of God. Always seemed to come. From that. Yeah, keeping an eye on the judgment of God is actually still a motivator to not sinning. Uh-huh. It, it, that's an actual biblical motivator. Perspective. What about the fact that it's God's goodness? It's God's grace. And the scriptures that back this up. Listen to Mark chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, 
After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here it comes. Listen to it. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What Right. You preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Even Jesus, even John the Baptist preached in this way. Repentance connected to the good news. Yeah, again, who is... <laughs> Who in the scriptures can you point to who disconnect the good news from the bad news? They always go together in evangelistic preaching. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen to this one in Romans chapter 2. I love this verse because I think it makes it so clear. It says, Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. What? The- exactly. Law, gospel, sin, grace. And it and faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ, Paul then goes on to say in Romans 10. Which requires you to preach law and gospel. Both. Together. Constantly. Anger of God, the venom of God, the fire coming out of his mouth, God, the goodness of God is what leads people. Yeah, the goodness of God is in juxtaposition to the judgment and wrath of God. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, you just, you're taking God's goodness and putting it in the abstract. To repentance. That's why we teach and preach the goodness of God. Because the goodness of God, it touches people deep down where they want to connect with His goodness. And so, yes, we can stand up every week and preach about sin. And I am. <laughs> Tell you, you've got to repent. And you probably do. Y- you probably do? Probably. Jesus said to the disciples in the Gospel of Luke 24 to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. That would include Aussies. But don't misunderstand the beauty and the grace that's in the innocent wonder and power of being repentant. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful biblical thought. Great, great, great biblical Doctrine, when you think about repentance and what it really, really is and what it really, really means. You know, sometimes people say, if you preach grace. When you think about what it is and what it really, really means, that would require you to really, really open up a biblical text and really, really show us what it really, really, really means. Yeah, strange. Talking about repentance without actually truly showing it, fleshing it out from Scripture. This is bizarre. You're not preaching sin. I love what Joseph Prince says. Joseph Prince says, the more you focus on Jesus, the less you want to sin. The more you... Yeah, unfortunately, Joseph Prince is kind of like a you know an antinomian... A, a prosperity preacher, kind of two errors all mixed up into one. Listen, grace of God, you don't want to fall short of that. All of a sudden, the things of earth grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory, in the light of his grace, 
There's an old song, in case you don't know it, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful faith. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm much better than all these people, honestly. (laughs) There was a sin right there, pride. (laughs) And a delusion. (laughs) Hey, but you got it, haven't you? Let's speak on the glory of God. Yes, sin has power. In the hands of the devil, it has the power of death. It has a wage and it has a gift. The wage of sin is death. The gift of God is what? Eternal life. You work hard for a wage, but you simply receive a gift. Why are so many people still toiling for the wage? In other words, they're still pushing themselves towards reminding themselves of their sinfulness and, and just how evil they've been and how far short of God's glory and how disappointed they are in themselves. So in a sense, they're still... Yeah, that's still an important thing to keep your eye on. Mm-hmm. Vital part of not only penitence, but sanctification. Being reminded constantly of the ways in which you fall short, repenting, being forgiven, and then actively putting on the new nature, taking off the old with its sinful passions, and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. you got to hang on to all of that. Toiling for the wage and understanding Jesus is just receiving the gift. The wage is death, the gift is eternal life, which doesn't just mean heaven, it is heaven, but it also means eternal purpose in your life today. It means really seeing the wonder of Jesus working in your life today. So in the hands of the devil, it kills potential. That's what he does, he steals, steals, kills. He kills potential? What? It destroys. It it kills potential. It, It kills innocence. This is what sin does. It can kill families and marriages. And re- yeah, it does that. It, it, it's an absolute destructive force in our life. Relationships. Let's be honest. People's sinfulness has destroyed trust. Destroyed relationship. True. It kills wellness, inner well-being. Just a sense. Actually, no. It's not the thing that kills wellness. The reason why we do not actually have wellness is because of sin. And you got to remember, we're born dead in trespasses and sins. We're born not well. That's the problem. The peace of God, sin will disrupt that every time. That, that beautiful, beautiful inner peace that literally means your conscience has been made clear through the blood of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus can do that. It kills a good sleep. It kills a clear mind. It kills a clean heart. And that's why in the hands of the devil, its power is devastating. But what power does it have in the hands of Jesus Christ? Could God literally take something as destructive as sin and turn it into power in your life? You see, I believe sin is candidacy. In other words, it's a qualification. Not a badge you're proud of, but... Sin is candidacy for what? (laughs) 
And and notice the words. I believe. I think. What text are you preaching from again, Brian? It's a qualification. It literally is a credential. It literally, literally makes you a candidate for so many things. If you were never a sinner, you would never have been a a candidate for salvation. But God took sin and all of a sudden he turned it into power. But for you as a sinner means that you qualify. Christ doesn't take sin and turn it into power. He renders it powerless. If there was no sin, there would be no Savior. If there was no- we wouldn't have needed a Savior. Adam and Eve had a face-to-face relationship with the God who created them, and it was our sin that broke that. Uh, it would have been far better for us to have not needed a Savior. Sin, there would be no salvation. If you're not in danger, and you're not lost, and you're not drowning, and I decided to come and do mouth-to-mouth, or CPR, at best it would be inappropriate. But actually... It's because we're sinners that we need a savior. It doesn't mean you go out and sin more because it still has its, its, its fruit in your life. You still reap what you sow. It's not licensed to sin. Remember, the goodness of Jesus means we don't even want to sin. Why would you fall short of the grace and the glory of God? As you don't even want to sin as much. But it makes you a candidate for salvation. It makes you a candidate for redemption. Sin makes you a candidate for salvation. Ah! <laughs> it's so convoluted. I'm going to talk more. About- I need me some more sin, but don't do it as a license, you know. Ah! Redemption in the last few minutes here, but you know something? It makes you a candidate. You want to hear another old song? I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed and I know I am. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Save from sin and I know. He is literally kicking his legs in the air like he is part of the Rockettes in New York City. Uh, this is just wow. I am. All my sins are taken away. Praise the Lord. Oh, the good old days. Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday. Whoa. In case you thought I'd settled down while I've been away. Notice he keeps making it clear that he, he is not in league with the good old days. Just want you to know I've settled up. Things are going to get hotter around here. <laughs> oh, redemption. You're a candidate for transformative power. The power that only God has to transform your life, reform your life, do something so marvelous inside of you. You're a candidate for deliverance. Yes, you are. You're a candidate for deliverance. I mean, wow. What a, I'm so glad I'm sinner. Man, I'm now a candidate. That makes, it's, <laughs> it's better than getting straight A's and being on the honor roll so that you can be qualified to go to college. God's our deliverer. He can deliver you from oppression and bondage and the things that try to afflict you. Don't you think it would have been better had we never been in bondage? You're a candidate for forgiveness. 
And you know, the scripture says in Luke 7, verse 47, in the, that, that portion of scripture, Luke 7, that those who have sinned much are forgiven much. Yes. Why is it again that we beat ourselves up because we sinned much and find... <laughs> yeah, so sit a lot so that you'll love Jesus more. No, no. Preach the law and you'll recognize how much you've sinned and how much you are forgiven in Christ. Just, you know, this is really, really messed up. So hard to receive the gift of being forgiven much. That's just the beauty of Jesus. It's the beauty of Jesus. I love it. So some are still paying that wage rather than just receiving the gift, the gift of life in Jesus' name. You're a candidate for a new life, a new day, new beginnings. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. Isn't that beautiful? You're a candidate for freedom. Yeah, every verse ripped out of context. No real exegesis here. Whom the Son of God sets free is free indeed. You're a candidate for grace. When I am weak, then I am strong. Your grace is all sufficient for me. Uh, You're a candidate for forgiveness. For forgiveness and you're a candidate for God's amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I'm making up for the two months I wasn't here. That saved a wretch. Like me. A what? A wretch? A wretch? Do you really think you're a wretch? Are you seeing something you really believe here? Can I read to you what the wretch is in the dictionary? It's a poor thing, a miserable creature, and a scoundrel. Do you really believe that about yourself? It's the outside of Jesus. Well, you if you preach God's law without shaving off the hard edges and calling sins mistakes... They might actually think of themselves as wretches. You know, here I'm assuming that you're trying to challenge them to embrace this idea that they really do fall short and are wretches, but you were refusing to preach the law in the process. Wretch is a big word, and it's a good word. I think it's wonderful that we just keep reminding ourselves it's only Jesus. Otherwise, my wretchedness still frames my life. (laughs) <laughs> that saves a wretch like me. You know, G- yeah, you'll note the guy who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, really believed he was a wretch, which means he had the law of God preached to him. Says he overcame sin. He didn't just do it on the cross. He did it also when he lived on earth. We all know the story, perhaps not everyone would, but knows the story of when Jesus, after fasting 40 days, comes back. He gets tempted by the devil three different times in three specific areas of life. One was to do with bread, one was to do with power, and the other was to do with pride. And so he's tempted there, but in actual fact, the Bible says, Hebrews 4, verse 15, 16, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who what? Again, this is true. You know, Christ does sympathize with our weaknesses. He was like us in every way, except for without sin. Is tempted in all points, as we are, all points. All points. On a Sunday morning, that kind of makes you uncomfortable to think that Jesus Christ was tempted sexually. And he was tempted maybe to lie. All points. Maybe. 
No, he was tempted to lie. <laughs> Not maybe. Why is it that he is so uncomfortable with embracing his sinful wretchedness and talking about it candidly? All points. Oh, yeah, but it's Jesus. Yeah, yeah, all points. He is tempted to lose his temper, <laughs> to rebel against his parents. His siblings were about seven of them. They would have loved that. How would you like to have a perfect brother? <laughs> he was tempted in all points as we are without sin. There's the key. He had victory in every area of life where we have our struggles. And he didn't have that victory for him. He had that victory for you. He had that. Yeah, that's right. Jesus' sinlessness is then imputed to us by grace through faith. When we are brought to penitent faith in Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness. He was clothed with our sinfulness on the cross and suffered the wrath of God in our place. Victory for me. He had that victory because he loves us. And then on the cross, of course, that incredible triumph over sin and death. And then in that suspended space between the cross and the resurrection in hell, he wins the victory over there. And the scripture used is hyperniki men in, uh, in, in the Greek, hyper over the top, abounding, super, Nike, swoosh. <laughs> Victory, that's what it means. That's what it means. Victory. And so men, well, I don't know what that means in the Greek, but for me, it's talking about humankind. We are superabounding, victorious people. That's who we are through Jesus Christ because he won out over sin. We are what? We are superabounding. Not super Christian, superabounding, victorious people who put our trust in Jesus. Aware that the only, only substitute for our sinfulness is the grace of Jesus, the goodness of God. How beautiful. And so, and then in the resurrection, of course, the ultimate triumph. Well, this is the thing. (laughs) Repentance is what leads us into the wonder of grace and salvation. And then redemption is what we receive from salvation. Two big theological concepts, redemption and then repentance. Well, you know something? To be redeemed, to be redeemed, many would know literally it means that someone paid the price and they bought your freedom. When it came to slaves in old times, they were slaves, someone had bought them and they literally could pay a ransom and buy back their own freedom. But with Jesus, it's different because when it comes to sin and the things that overwhelm us, we don't have the inner strength. We don't have the inner strength or the capacity to ransom ourselves. But we have Jesus. Who do we have? We have. Now, this is true. We do not have the ability to redeem ourselves or pay the ransom to be set free from sin. That redemption price was paid by Christ, by his blood on the cross. Oh, come on, Sunday morning service. Who do we have? We have Jesus. <laughs> the author and the finisher of our faith who gives us so great a salvation. Why would you ever want to neglect what the Bible says so great a salvation? Well, 
Here's the scripture, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us. I love that word, conveyed us. Think about that, conveyed us, transported us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. So the Greek word for redemption can be properly translated in English, released, ransomed, set free. Released from oppression, ransomed from slavery, set free from prison. And you know what I love most about redemption? If you look at it biblically, we're very aware that he's redeemed us from sin. Mm-hmm. Exactly, which means we were in slavery to sin, which is exactly what Romans 6 says, yes. It's not just redeemed us from, it's redeemed us to. And you know the power of that is that we can focus on what we're redeemed from but our focus is still on what we were redeemed from, from sin, falling short and missing the mark. We put our focus there. Although I'm glad he's you know, picking up on these gospel elements. And, and at this point, we're getting something like the gospel from the text he's ripping out of context. But he hasn't clearly preached law and gospel. He has not clearly, biblically, proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sins, called people to repent, to be forgiven. And in some ways he is placarding Christ-ish, but it because he hasn't rightly done the law, he it's really confusing as to what exactly the gospel means in the context of what he said. Someone set free from prison, I guess they just mostly open the front door and out you go. And so it's like standing there and you're free, but you look back. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the audience, uh, getting them to make decisions of one kind or another. Not sure what they're going to be deciding there at Hillsong. The prison think, I'm not going in there again. 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 The whole idea is you're free from, but you're free to. A new life, a fresh start, a new beginning. The problem is that many times again, the way that redemption is preached, it's who He's redeemed us from. We keep going back and circling around how sinful I was and what God's, and it's just like skiing. I'm not going to hit that tree. I'm not going to hit that tree. I'm not going to hit that tree. I'm not going to, if you're looking at the tree, I'll tell you now you're heading for the tree. You got to look at where you want to go to miss the tree. And that's the same in life. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to, don't focus on what you don't want to do again. Focus on Jesus. (laughs) Focus on Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Could you tell me a little bit more about Jesus then, please? I'd like to focus on him. Ah, he's so incredible. I had a Hebrew scholar tell me that the whole idea of being redeemed from and being redeemed to is a theme of the entire Old Testament. And I believe it's a theme also of the New Testament. Redeemed from sin and oppression and bondage and darkness and redeemed to identity and purpose and destiny. Redeemed to identity, purpose and destiny. Oh boy. Yeah, that, that's not Christian sanctification. And that's not part of the gospel. What are you talking about? And a new life, a blessed life. Hey, let's understand. And a blessed life, you know, like wealth and 
health and things like that. The wonder of being redeemed too, the goodness of God, because I think it's incredible. And you know something? I wrote a song. I wrote a song that was very recent actually. And it has redemption themes to it. Others wouldn't admit that I wrote it. It may not even be true. I may have just sinned right now. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to speak it. I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Free at last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. While you were a slave to sin, Jesus died for you. Yes, he died for you. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We are children of the Most High God, aren't we? Aren't we? Aren't we? Come on, across the entire church. Let's stand. Let's begin to sing this. Let's declare it. Let's done. All right, so there was some law-ish. There was some gospel-ish things there. Both categories, very blurry, not very well-defined. Yes, there were out-of-context verses and a lot of um, theologizing on the part of Brian Houston. And at the end of the day, uh, you just have to ask the question, with the name of the sermon, the power of sin, the way he preached it. I mean, it's almost as if sin is a great thing. And that's kind of the problem, is that his theology is messed up, and he's not preaching biblical texts in context, which is part of the reason why his theology and his preaching is all over the map. But the reason why he won't preach texts in context is because the Bible doesn't teach many of the core doctrines and ideas and concepts that are delivered from the stage there at Hillsong. So in order to have the freedom to you know, create the false impression that God's all about destiny and purpose and influence and affluence and health and wealth and decreeing and declaring, he dare not work through biblical texts and context. And as a result of it, when he's clearly attempting to do something that's like preaching the gospel and dealing with sin and stuff like that, he still is incapable of doing it right. What a mess. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.